hear me. Скажи мне, американец, в чем сила? А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? От ныне русские земля единый быть. My name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and this time around, my guest is Caroline Riddler. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, yeah, very, very pleased to be here. Okay, so before we talk about the film we're going to be watching today, Caroline, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so at the moment, um, I'm doing a PhD at the University of Nottingham. And my PhD is all about the Soviet rock musician, Victor Soy. Uh, so I'm looking at um, particularly how his rise to fame, what that can tell us about the cultural politics of Glasnost, so all the changes that happened in the late 1980s, when things became a lot more open, the bands could now play in these stadium concerts and just looking at how what Victor Soy can tell us about that period of time. Um, so, yeah, I've come at that from my undergraduate at Durham University, So I did a Russian and French, okay. Russian and French there, and then I carried that on at the University of Oxford, and I also did Russian and French. At that point, I just couldn't couldn't let French oh, go. Ah, so you're kind of like, yeah, it's only now that you're ha- having to having to make the choice between the two. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, at what point did the interest in soy specifically? Because obviously, you've got the Russian from the undergraduate degree but yeah when did the mm-hmm. specifically the rock side of things come in by the way i should say before we move on as far as cool phd subjects <laughs> i was just like that is awesome it never even occurred to me to do something that interesting i know well yeah i mean i feel very lucky to do what i'm doing i can just you know spending all my days just thinking about soviet rock music it is pretty cool yeah um and it came about kind of by chance So I did a module in my first year at Durham, which was about just understanding Russia. It was quite a broad module just for first years. Uh, most of us were doing it from beginners. And there was just one lecture and they were talking about, I think it was to do sort of underground, overground, talking about how things were, you know, restricted. And then there was kind of things were changing, the cultural you know, changes through the decades of the Soviet Union. And there was just an essay question that was, you know, could talk about, you know, the transitions from underground to overground. And one of the lecture slides had just been about Soviet rock music. And I thought, oh, that's so mm. cool. You know, it was only one part of one lecture. And I thought, you know, I could write a whole essay about this. So I did. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I'm guessing there was a bit of an interest in rock music anyway. Yeah, I should have probably come to that before. <laughs> so I, I used to play in rock bands, especially ah, okay. at school. So I, I play bass guitar and I also play drums in a band, although I could not You know, I don't know if I really consider myself a drummer, but I'm pretty decent. <laughs> so yeah, moving moving around the rhythm section. Yeah, yeah, I had done. 
my brother's a drummer and I just kind of learned from his, you know, his drum kit. And it was, yeah, it was great. I played bass in a band with my brother sort of when I was more like 16, mm. 17. Then at sixth form, I just joined a band with some friend from school who'd recently lost their drummer. I was like, okay, I can do that. So <laughs> I'd had that kind of like, yeah, just that interest. I'd listened to it, sort of had that upbringing onto rock concerts. So to me, being able to write an essay about rock music was just so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's definitely where like the divide between like fun and work definitely. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it does. Just, I think so. I mean, I've, I've not done so much recently, but I have been, I've got a bit of a new project mm. for myself. I've been doing some bass recordings of, Kino's songs so I'm starting to sort of put those on YouTube so getting back into that yeah so that definitely the lies between yeah work and work and fun are definitely a little bit blurred at the moment but that's 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 great I think that's that's an attitude more people should have yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's good yeah so in in the course of your studies did you get to spend any time in Russia yes I did so mine was a sort of typical four-year course third year abroad I was doing French and Russian, so I spent the first semester in France and I spent the second semester in St. Petersburg. And that was really cool. I was studying at a sort of Russian intensive language course that was a connection with my university. Mm. It was actually the St. Petersburg Transport University of all places. So <laughs> Yes, that that's kinda of like one of the interesting legacies of like the socialist past of you have things like named like yeah. the transport university. What was it? Something transport and communication, something mm. like that. This is a very banal question, but like, what time of <laughs> year were were you in St. Petersburg? Because I've I've visited once for like three, four days in practically white nights, um, oh, and, yeah. and it managed to not rain the whole time, which I'm told by Russians is kind of like <laughs> very unusual to get three straight days of sunshine. So, uh, so yeah, wh- when were you? When were you there? Yeah, I, I think that's a very valid question. I think your experience could be very different different times. I was um I was there from February till just right at the end of May. Oh, okay. So you got to experience <laughs> quite a transition. <laughs> it was. It was huge. So in February, it was you know cold, snow, everything you'd expect. Although I and just dark. I'm guessing dark, very dark. Although I, I guess sort of coming from England though, it's not as maybe much of a shock as some of the you know other that's places. That's true. But. That's true. Like long time listeners will know, my wife is from the states and she's been a mm. guest on quite a few episodes, and and she found moving that far north to Moscow and just the fact that like you have these sort of endless nights in the winter was like quite a shock to the system. But yeah, us and Canadians and Scandinavians and. <laughs> Russians kind of yeah. it's kind of par for the course but yeah St Petersburg is just that little bit more extreme definitely it kind of it kind of felt like I sort of gone from English winter to kind of a more intense winter but that transition wasn't too bad because it was from cold to cold but I think the thing that really shocked me was that the cold never went <laughs> yeah so you got into March and normally in the UK you'd sort of think oh right we're gonna get the spring we're gonna get a few flowers coming up you know the days are going to sort of seem a bit brighter but there's no change. <laughs> it's <laughs> it still snowy. And then you get on. into April and it's still snowy. There's still no leaves on the trees and you just don't know. Are there seasons in Russia? Is it just cold? <laughs> and then suddenly, in about the sort of beginning of May or so, it, everything just goes green and suddenly mm. there's this massive change. And I think, yeah, I think that was the, the most amazing thing. But definitely at the end of May, with the it was nearly white nights, I would say. I think they're absolutely, you know, the really completely light all night is more in sort of beginning of June. I think I just, just was short of that. But I still got to experience, so there was an, 
the night of the museums at the end of May. Oh, and that yeah, was cool. amazing. So there were basically, there were concerts on all night in St. Petersburg. You know, I think it was up to about 5am and I stayed right till the end. Oh, nice. But, yeah. So I just went from one thing to another, sort of an exhibition to a, you know, there was a, I think I remember there was an acapella choir and some mm. sort of, um, oh, it was all sorts of things. I can't remember exactly. Oh, I remember going to some, one of these sort of amazing, you know, theatres and there was, they were playing the balalaika and it was so Russian. And it was, <laughs> and you looked at the clock and it was like 1am and you thought, what? <laughs> this is bizarre. And yeah, and then all the cafes stay open all night as well because they could make business. So I remember drinking a hot chocolate at 3am and it was bright sunshine outside and you, you, <laughs> it's very confusing. This is not normal. I don't know how long I could keep this up. <laughs> no, yeah. But very confusing. Yeah, even just like the three days I was there, I kind of like have a little bit this is going to be the most pretentious thing that anyone has ever said but it did give me a little bit of an insight into the sort of feverish tone of like Dostoevsky novels the fact yeah. that it's kind of like not only can't you sleep it's kind of like well why would I it's like it's light I can be up and doing stuff except I need to sleep and yeah. I'm a bit wired oh it's very fun at least at that time I wasn't you know I didn't have any particularly difficult work to do mm. I was just working on my Russian was my primary aim so right so just hanging hanging out is, Great, is yeah. homework it's homework <laughs> it is yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds that sounds so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. So, yeah, returning to the the rock side of things, then, at what point did did rock music start to become popular in in the Soviet Union, and how? Because you know, it's supposed to be kind of this, or it's thought of at least in the West as like this forbidden thing that Russians and other people in the Soviet Union weren't allowed to listen to because it was, you know, didn't line up very neatly with Marxism. Yeah, and I think this is probably one of the most interesting things about what I'm doing with my thesis is that this kind of idea of like the underground rock music is a little bit limiting and it's not completely true. (laughs) So kind of, you know, maybe in sort of 1970s when the first sort of bands were trying to make their music in Russian, maybe you could really say that was underground and it purely had nothing to do with the, you know, overground kind of the, the official institutions. But quite quickly you know these rock musicians did want to be popular they weren't sort of you know they weren't sort of just happy in the underground world they actually had ambitions and I don't know if that should be surprising I mean it's probably not surprising but I think it just sort of goes against the idea that they were kind of rebelling and resisting the sort of official Soviet you know world because they kind of weren't as well so in 1981 the Leningrad Rock Club opened and that was kind of a result of pressure from these underground rock musicians to kind of have some sort of official platform where they could perform and it would be completely legal and they could be heard. So this sounds like basically people kind of like complained until the authorities going, oh, go on then. <laughs> kind of, but then for the authorities, there was like an advantage of that as well because to them it meant that they could sort of, they knew that the rock music was going on, but by having it on this kind of official stage and there'd be sort of concerts regularly there'd be festivals they could kind of control what was going on they could see it mm, and it's less presumably less work to than actually yeah. like going and trying to root it out and spy on it when it's just like okay yeah you can you can go play in that thing over there and and we'll just make sure you don't do anything that's too you know quote unquote out of line yeah yeah i think i think that was kind of the thought behind Some it I mean, kind of pragmatism going on there yeah and then for the rock musicians they had to make some sort of a compromise too because Mm, of course they couldn't just sing anything they wanted to they had to have their lyrics checked before they could perform them everything had to be approved 
So they had to make some compromises. But yeah, I mean, this this is something that Ingar Steinholt's written a lot about. So I don't want to okay. take full credit for this because this is from a book in about 2003. And that was a really good sort of starting point for people to start thinking about how rock music, it's got this kind of whole myth of being underground. Mm. And it's the way it's perceived and the way it's kind of, you know, it's revered as this kind of really sort of authentic underground phenomenon. But it wasn't that, wasn't that simple. And this was happening in, you know, the Brezhnev, you know, this Brezhnev was still alive in 1981. And you think of stagnation. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Like 81 is like the Cold War is heating back up and it's, yeah. you know, Western rock musicians are writing songs about how we're going to get nuked tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't they didn't write lots about politics in their songs either because they couldn't, you know. I can't imagine that's that's a very good idea. But then this, this is where it becomes, again, really interesting from an academic perspective because they would always say, oh, I'm not interested in politics. It's not, you know, I'm just interested in art. I'm just... But then you've got to come at it from another angle. You think, well, how much was politics involved? The fact of doing rock mm. music anyway was somewhat subversive because it wasn't really very Soviet, you know? Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> something that was that was necessarily, like, smiled upon. No. <laughs> yeah, or encouraged. But, but, but then there's so many books because even when this rock music was started, you know, even in, like, the 1960s, people got hold of Western rock music. They wanted to emulate it. This is before Russian rock. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about this. Is how is how does it even start to be something that people are interested in and wanting to emulate? Because yeah, so they they had access, so they could tune into these foreign radio stations. There was one called mm. the Voice of America, which is often cited, and somehow you know music journals they'd smuggle them in. You know these people, these diehard fans would you know learn English from the lyrics and try and translate them into Russian. And then rock bands started to, because before the sort of whole Russian rock genre happened, they would perform songs, basically copies, by singing in often very bad English. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they would try and be like rock and roll, you know, sort of Beatles was a huge inspiration. Yeah, I know the Beatles were super, super, super famous. Um, and there's all the kind of business about the lengths that people would go to like duplicate, a, you know, Western western records like yeah like stealing like x-ray exactly, slides yeah. from hospital bins and turning that into like essentially vinyl discs like how how do you even figure out how to do that it's amazing That's... yeah they would um i mean I, I i actually got to witness two of these real rock so they used to call it rock on bones because you know it was rock music on bones yeah, yeah yeah and i got to see two and i went i went to bremen in december at the um there's a big research institute for Central and East European Studies, the University of Bremen. And I got to see their, have a bit of a tour of their archives. And yeah, I was shown two real examples of these. And you, you know, you can see somebody's ribs. <laughs> Some, it's yeah. just incredible. You think the music that's on there, you know, the way they did that, and it's just incredible. Yeah, I, I imagine it's only on very, very, very special occasions that that ever gets a needle put on it, so you can yeah. actually hear what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. But I would be so curious to know, like, what that yeah. a record made like that actually actually sounds like. Yeah, wow, that's uh, amazing, and it's kind of a, a little bit of a tangent, but just having watched the number of Soviet films I've now seen for this project. Even in, you know, totally official films, mm. because you basically couldn't make... I mean, I don't know, this is probably somebody else's PhD, like <laughs> underground filmmaking, but because there's even more equipment involved and it's more expensive, I imagine that's even more difficult. But yeah. in, like, totally official films, you've got quite rocky-sounding 
music like it, even if you go back to i think ivan vasilievich changes profession is like 71 72 mm-hmm. yeah and you've got like pop songs that just sound like quite 60s swinging beatles-esque pop rock and it's kind of like okay clearly that's coming from somewhere yeah and this this sort of brings me perfectly onto what i was kind of hoping yeah to talk about so they used to have um because these bands were happening and sort of underground bands. The, you know, the authorities picked up on this and they thought, oh, well, what we can do, because, you know, the youth have interest in this music, why don't we make our own state-approved rock bands where mm. we could control their lyrics? So they'd have, like, these sort of, you know, Soviet official rock stars and they'd be singing about the glory of the fatherland and the, you know, the, the um, value of doing a good day's labour. But to, to songs that would sound like the Beatles, mm. which is so that that shows again these kind of the blur. You can't just say all of Soviet rock was underground because there was actually very very official Soviet rock music. Whether you want to call that Russian rock or something different, whether that fits into the same sort of what we perceive as Russian rock is a whole other question. But it was so blurred. I mean, the sort of unofficial official thing. Yeah, it was. It's a huge question. Yeah, so so what happens then as Gorbachev comes into power in 85 and you have the glassness or openness policy? How, 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 does that, how does the situation evolve? Yeah, well, it had a huge effect. So the bands such as Kia, obviously the one that I'm studying, but other ones such as Kvarium, they sort of got on board with these policies almost. They, 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 they did have ambitions. They kind of, you know, I would go as far as to say as soy did want to be a rock star. And so if the state was offering him these more, these opportunities, he took them. So Kino, uh, well, Soy was involved in films, so not, I know the two most famous films he was in is Asa. So that was a sort of a, a youth film. In, yeah. Yes, which uh, long-time listeners will know we watched for the show. Yeah, yeah. And he makes a really great appearance at the end. So he is Victor Soy in this film and he just performs as part of Kino. And that really, you know, that was a, Big film that really brought him to this kind of mainstream mm. attention. And then also The Needle in 1988, if I'm not wrong. Yes, where he's like the the proper, the star of the film. Yeah, and these are mainstream Soviet films. He was appearing on TV, um, sort of TV interviews. There's quite a lot of those exist, often like sort of programmes about, you know, youth culture or about music. You know, he's there. He's a, he becomes like quite a big public figure. And definitely by the time he dies in 1990, he's absolutely huge so you know there, there were these opportunities in glassness for the musicians but they always had to kind of fight with sort of maintaining this sort of aura of being underground of being authentic so yeah that was going to be my question because in in western rock and particularly i think of it as as being a little bit later but then of course you've got punk as well in like the late 70s which is very concerned with authenticity but in the 90s you've kind of got like grunge and alternative rock and mm. and that kind of thing and there's 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 a big kind of element of like selling out is the worst yeah, thing yeah. you can do is there like an analogous thing going on with soviet rock musicians yeah or, I mean, yeah i mean it's obviously a very different context there, but... there, there, it was a very different context i mean they would they did sort of take that idea of product so they would talk about that they but you can't really say that anything in the Soviet times was commercial. It's quite a tricky word. You know, I've sort of wanted to mm. talk about, you know, the sort of increasing commercialization of rock music in the late 1980s, because from a Western perspective, that's what it looks like. They're, you know, they're going on tours, they're earning yeah. money. But it wasn't really commercial in the same sense. These was, you know, he was still probably living in a 
in a flat and he was still probably traveling on well not right in the late 1980s but certainly in the mid 1980s just going around on public transport like everyone else but the main sort of yeah yeah it's not like limos and (laughs) but they feared selling out more in terms of being seen to sell out to the authorities almost to be seen to have given in to the pressure to become official so that all the sort of soviet rock bands they kind of had a choice you know back in the early 1980s they could they could have and some did so like for example time machine was quite a prominent moscow rock band that was part of the underground but they sold out i mean it wasn't really sold out because it was their decision they decided to become a professional band and so they had to kind of compromise their freedom they had to perform you know, all of their concerts would have to be approved every moment in the concert and every lyric. But they took that choice, whereas the bands such as Kino Akvarium, the well-known underground bands, didn't. So in order to kind of keep that, it was, yeah, it was complicated because even in the late 1980s, they will, they still were not considered professional. They may have gone and played in professional concerts in terms of it was, you know, paid for and sponsored by, you know, the Soviet authorities, but they were still not professional bands. So my understanding is that essentially if you weren't a member of the musicians union and getting your salary yes. for doing that, you were essentially, you had a day job, but because of the like very lax kind of Soviet work <laughs> culture, you could often kind of get away with like not doing very much, depending on how... Uh, how stringent your manager was and that's that was certainly the case in the mid 1980s so victor soy very famously okay. worked as a boiler room stoker and that's quite well known especially okay. with russians and their kind of popular imagination of victor soy sure he, you know he worked at this boiler room called kamchatka in leningrad and it employed quite a lot of rock musicians so it wasn't just soy who worked there and obviously the person who ran it was quite sympathetic um because yeah. they even he would even hold concerts in the boiler room. You know, he'd use that as a space for these unofficial concerts. You know, these quite a legendary space. I was going to say you should we should definitely talk a bit more about unofficial concerts as well. Yes, because they happened alongside for many years. Yeah, because we have like the kvartirniki. What so what were they? They were quite informal concerts held at people's apartments, basically. Yes, so the Russian word for apartment or flat is yeah. kvartira. So exactly. Hence, yeah. But the reason why I was saying quite informal is that often there would actually be managers who kind of put on the concerts. Oh, okay. So they were, they were kind of technically illegal, these concerts. But the rock musicians themselves probably weren't that worried because the thing that was illegal was making money through it. So if they could sort of prove that oh, they weren't okay. making any money, even if possibly they were then it was kind of okay. They just had to, you know, if somebody knocked on the door, they'd just say, oh, it's a birthday party and all would be well. They'd just be like, oh, fine, go about your business. And so so as as long as nobody's passing a hat around, you're... But they did. They did pass a hat around. That was, that Ah. was, yeah. Uh So they they did, they did earn money from them, especially in Moscow. You just had to be discreet. Discreet, yeah. But I know, for example, um, sort of people have said that, you know, in the early 1980s, they went to Moscow quite a lot. So they are a Leningrad rock band, but they travelled mm. there. Apparently, they could get more money there. <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But but sometimes, actually, quite a common thing was the musicians would get paid in alcohol. <laughs> so if people didn't have money to give... that That's definitely lining up with the Western rock star image. <laughs> Just pay me a booze, man. <laughs> yeah, but the managers that kind of put on these concerts, they were, they were organised, you know, between the cities getting the bands in, getting people, you know, to advertise the concert had to be very discreet, maybe using code words, you know, something like that. And obviously they were only very small apartments, so they were very 
ex, you know, exclusive, but they had to be more careful because if they were sort of caught for doing these activities, it was a lot more serious than being caught with a guitar <laughs> in an apartment, you know. <laughs> so what would be the punishments if they were caught, like, I, I guess, trying to make money from... It could be quite serious jail, you know, proper mm. prison sentences could happen. I know... Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Kino's manager um, in the late, sorry, from about 1989, I think, um, he used to work as, you know, one of these kind of manager-type figures. And he was caught with some hard currency... And he was jailed for, I think, 17 years. So he was very much out, you know, for, from about 19, from about 1970, he was in prison. Yeah, so hard, hard currency in the sense of like, not rubles. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> gotcha, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, that's, that's so, so interesting. I mean, I feel like we should probably talk a little bit more about Soy and his background as the film we're going to be watching today is a biopic about him called Lieto, which is the Russian word for summer, from 2018 and directed by Kirill Serebrenikov. We've kind of talked a little bit about his career and like some of his activities, but who was he and and kind of where was where was he? Um, yeah, what was his background? Yeah, his his background is pretty ordinary, pretty standard. I think a lot of the sort of Soviet rock underground, there'd be sort of these intellectual from sort of intellectual families. But so he wasn't. He was different because he was quite sort of working class, really. His father was an engineer. His mother was a teacher. He um, went to art college. He actually dropped out of art college. He, he was a bit okay. more interested in the sort of playing in bands with his with his course mates than he was in the art. And then he went on to train as a woodcarver, actually. Oh, so he, okay. he worked on the restoration of Catherine's Palace in Pushkin, I think. Oh, yeah, wow, so cool. he was actually involved in quite some high caliber stuff. He was actually um, interviewed on TV by I think it was a by a program as a kind of uh, up and coming woodcarver, you know, so the new generation. Oh, wow. so I've never been able to find that footage, but he, you know, he had this kind of practical background, which is quite set him apart quite a lot. I think the other thing about him that people do notice is the fact that he is his well, his father is of Korean ethnicity. Yes, I was going to say, it will definitely strike people when when you see a photograph of him and you notice that Soy is not uh, the no. most stereotypically Russian-sounding name. Yeah. Because um, I don't think until I knew about Soy that I even necessarily knew that there were many ethnic Koreans living in the Soviet Union at all, because yeah. obviously obviously North Korea was in the, the Soviet bloc, but it was separate. It wasn't a Soviet republic, so I didn't... I just didn't necessarily know that there would be a population within the Soviet Union, but mm. I think I think a lot of that is is me just not necessarily taking into account how fluid borders are over time. So yeah, yeah you yeah. know, just because at some point someone draws a hard line doesn't mean that, <laughs> that actually who lives where is is that neat. Uh, so. So yeah, that's kind of a, a an interesting aspect of his of his background as well. Yeah. And I do think it is important. I mean, he was there weren't many, especially in Leningrad, um, because his father had moved there to study engineering and just kind of stayed okay. there. But you know, especially sort of in his school years, he was very much noticed as being you know different, and that did shape his identity. He did very much kind of feel his Asian heritage in a lot of things that he did. So his big idol was Bruce Lee. And that's very well documented. Oh, okay. and he was a huge fan 
had posters, managed to watch all of his films again on kind of, you know, tapes that had made their way over to somebody's flat. And he, he'd watched all the films and he was, a, and a lot of, you see a lot of photos of Victor Soy, he's kind of posing in sort of karate poses because he wanted to emulate Bruce Lee. Mm. Um, and also there's sort of people that have spoken about how he used to love going and there was a hotel in Moscow and I think he used to love going and sort of trying the food and sort of seeing other people that look like himself. Mm. Because it was sort of mostly for kind of, you know, foreign tourists. But if you managed yeah. to get in, you know, he he was very sort of inspired by that. And he was very inspired as well by the kind of Eastern philosophies that kind of comes through at the time he spent with Boris Grubenchikov and others as well who were into that. And they were very interested in these kind of philosophies. But I think it would be sort of fair to say that because he had sort of experience feeling different, looking different from everyone else, it really sort of ingrained itself into his identity. Yeah, because my my understanding is is that like I mean I don't know whether this is something that ever really comes up in in your research is that in spite of the state rhetoric of like you know we're a brotherhood of nations here and we we don't have racism yes. in the Soviet Union what was the reality is that something you're that's come up at all or in your yeah, research yeah it hasn't really come up so far I think one thing that I do definitely mm. want to think about is kind of how his sort of outer appearance, as that's how the kind of how the Russians talk about it. You know, people talk about how okay. Victor Soy, despite his Asian outer appearance, has a Russian soul. And that kind of sounds almost sort of frighteningly racist to us. But that's kind of, that's the way that they see it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I don't want to say that's my view, but that's kind of the way that he is perceived. He's perceived as different. It's kind of presumably meant yes, as a compliment. Is, yes. Because, like the best thing that you can have is exactly, a Russian yes. soul because that's there's sort of like I mean I don't know how many people like really buy into it <laughs> but certainly it's a concept that you that you come across and it's I mean it, it's it's kind of probably analogous to like people talking about like British yeah, values yeah, as if yeah. like it's the sort of like people are people exactly yeah but it, it was a factor. It was a factor. And I'd, I'd always sort of shied away okay. from wanting to talk about it because to me, you know, course. Sort of, you wouldn't immediately think that that was something you know, that required much more thought than, oh, isn't it sort of different that he's got this background? But it was sort of important to him in many ways. Sure. No, it's, just, it's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um. Well, so we've we've done a little bit of a, a, a background on who Tsoi was as this is going to be a biopic that we're watching so we should probably get on with the film so before we do there's a word that we always say and that word is payekhali and Caroline for first-time listeners can you give them a quick definition of what payekhali means it means let's go <laughs> awesome okay so three two one payekhali And we're back. Caroline and I have just watched Lieta Summer from 2018 and before we let you know what we thought of the film we're going to go over to Caroline for a summary of the plot so if you haven't seen it yet and don't want to know what happens 
this is the time to pause the podcast and watch the film because there is a good chance there will be some pretty significant spoilers from here on in. So with that out of the way, over to you, Caroline. Hi, thank you. Uh, I love seeing the film again. Uh, I have seen it quite a few times in the past, so it's been really great to have the chance to go back and really, really get into the nitty-gritty of the film. Lieta is about the early 1980s Leningrad rock scene. So it's about two, there are two main protagonists in the film, Victor Soy and also Mike Naumenka, who was a bit older than Soy, sort of came from an earlier generation. Yeah, he's kind of like maybe like five, six years older than Soy because Soy is in his late teens and Mike is in his mid, starting to be maybe late 20s certainly mid 20s yeah definitely so soy would have been about 20 in, in the film and mike would have been yeah sort of mid 20s he was born in 1955 and Soy was born in 1962 <laughs> so for the precise dates yes um but you saw you see in the film how mike takes this mentor figure for soy as he enters the leningrad rock scene as he makes new contacts uh the film really focuses on how the band, you know, comes together, how they enter the Leningrad Rock Club and how they make their first underground recording. So it's very much a sort of biographical film in terms of it does cover these key events of Kino's first years. But the film at the same time is just as much about Mike Naumenka as it is, it is about Soy, even mm. though a lot of people talk about it as being a Soy biography, you know, Victor Soy biography. Yes, that was definitely the hook that I came into it with. So I knew very little going in. And I, to be honest, I didn't even know who Mike Naumenko was. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to like quickly do some reading up. Um, and so as well as the Soy getting himself established in the Leningrad rock scene, we also have his budding relationship with Mike's wife. Yes. So so that's, that's happening at alongside uh, as well yes so this film is actually based on so mike's wife natalia her memoirs so that's why it's very much focused from her point of view and mm. um, there has been some talk people aren't so convinced whether this whole affair that's portrayed in the film is actually true uh, mm. whether soy and natalia did have some sort of steamy affair and that this kind of affected um soy and mike's relationship whether that even happened or not i mean i I've never particularly read about it and I don't particularly know. But then, of course, this is in Natalia's memoirs. It's early mm. 1980s. And even if it did happen, would Victor Soy particularly talked about it? I don't know. But anyway, but this is... <laughs> he doesn't no. come out of it particularly no. well. But, you know, the film isn't really about facts. So the film really sort of creates this atmosphere of the Leningrad rock scene. And the sort of the lifestyles of the people as they sort of go backstage and you see them on, you know, performing and this kind of rock and roll lifestyle seems to be the main crux of the film. What actually happens isn't quite as important. That's the sort of impression I got is this very sort of romantic, nostalgic view of this time when the rock musicians could experience this some level of freedom, despite all of the restrictions to do with. Uh, stagnation and the sort of hostile attitudes towards rock music and you feel mm. that sense of rock and roll this desire to break free from any constraints mm. and the movie c contains several sequences which are very much signposted as explicitly 
like literally a character breaks the fourth wall and says this did not happen exactly and there's like four or five of those and and each of these sequences happen with a like a a cover version of like a famous 70s western rock hit Mm -hmm. but sung in english but heavily accented russian it's quite surreal it is surreal and i think that's the intention i mean the film had a lot of criticism from people that were part Mm. of the leningrad rock scene that it wasn't you know, it was all lies. I think that's what Boris Grevenchikov said. He was the lead singer of the band Aquarium, which was perhaps the most popular, the most famous flagship band of the Leningrad rock underground. And he said that he thought that the film just portrayed the rockers as young Moscow hipsters. It didn't really get into the real spirit of rock and roll. Mm. But is that what Serebrennikov intended? I mean, I'm not sure he, you know, uses this figure of the sceptic to literally say this didn't happen, if only yeah. it had. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that, that's kind of how I see the film. Yeah, it is, it is a challenge, yeah. Because mm. um, definitely I can see if you are Boris Grubenshikov, and he was, Mike Nauminka was in Grubenshikov's band for a while, wasn't he, before he yeah. kind of started to do his own thing. So this was this would have been a guy that he knew really, really well. So Very you can well. kind of understand being a little bit sensitive about putting this friend of yours who we discover mm. at the end of the film is no longer with us because he he died what 1991 1992 1991 yeah yeah so he he didn't outlive soy by by very much so and, and that's very very poignant at mm. the end where you have this gig again back at the leningrad rock club and you just have two main guys dates flash up and it's just kind of like because I knew Soy going in, but I didn't. I didn't know about mm. uh, about Mike. And I was just like, oh, they're both not here anymore, and that's that's very sad for the viewer who doesn't know that's going to happen. It can be quite shocking, but most Russian audiences they would have sure. that sense of foreboding throughout the whole film. Yeah, they would yeah, know, yeah. and I think that adds a whole new layer to it when you do know that these mm. people that seem so free and the people that have these plans for the future, although there is a moment in the film where Mike Naumaka, I think, it, yeah, so the character who's representing Boris Grebenshikov is called Bob, but we recognise uh, him okay. to be Boris Grebenshikov because the, ah, the, the actor okay. looks so much like him and he's playing the part. He was sometimes subtitled as Boris, yes. even though people were calling him Bob on, on, on screen. So I feel like I probably should have picked that up because I, <laughs> you know... I knew who he was, but mm. I didn't. I didn't necessarily. I don't know the background well enough to like plug him into the uh, into that character. So I can definitely see how he'd be a bit sensitive about being on screen. Exactly. I mean, there's so much to talk about this anyway. Uh, because right at the end of the film, there is a on the screen some sort of what would you call it? I don't know. <laughs> title at the end of the film. Basically saying any likenesses in this film are completely coincidental. Yeah. Which is very hard to believe when everybody, you know, with a knowledge of Leningrad rock music, which would be more people than you might think in Russia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would, they would know and they'd see that disclaimer at the end and think, really? You know, yeah. I, I, some of them are very obvious. Um, for example, in the studio when Soy is doing his first recording... And they refer to the sound technician as Andre, and everybody knows that must be Andre Tropila, who was the underground sound 
engineer in Leningrad. He was another person who wasn't happy with how the film came out as well, I read somewhere. Yes, exactly. And they, they requested that their likenesses not be yeah. used. And even, um, so Soy's first bandmate, Alexei Rybin, who was with Kino until 1983, I think, so he basically started the band with Soy. They were originally called Garini Igipa Baloidi. Yes, and which there is comes a up in, to that the, in, in the, the film. film. That does yes. come up, yes. <laughs> which I want to say that was that was a sci-fi film from like the 50s or 60s, I think, or possibly a book. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know where that name came from. Obviously, in the film, it's alluded to that Mike Nomenker was the one who... Came up with that. Christened them. Yeah. yeah, that came up with that name. But... Yeah, I mean, there are so many myths and all these myths are kind of come into the film. Mm. There are so many moments when we see, for example, people talk about Soy as being his Peteushnik, which was part of his myth. The fact that he went to St. Petersburg Technical College, the fact that he studied wood carving, mm. all of this plays into the film, adds to this kind of mythology. The way that Kino's name is portrayed as, as being thought up, um, so that they're portrayed sort of just walking around the city and they're experimenting with two syllable names i think it's vino kino yeah uh, and, they, and they initially just go right by it and just keep coming up with more names and then someone comes back yeah. to it and it's like oh yeah we already said that one yeah exactly yeah <laughs> but that that is the myth but then there's the other myth that they saw it on a sign outside saying kino and then they said yes okay i mean there are all these myths that play mm. in and the way that sarah brennikov kind of weaves them together makes it very much a film about the myth of the leningrad mm. rock underground rather than about how it really was. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was just um, coming back to what you were saying about the um, their fate, mm. the fact that they both died and that shock of seeing the date. But there is there is one point in the film when, when Boris Gorbachev talks to Mike Naumanka and he says, you know, something about, you know, we need to... No, Mike Naumanka tells Boris, you know, we need to record, we need to record Victor, we need to record Victor. And Bob says, you know, why? You know, what's the rush? And Mike says, you know, anything could happen. Oh, that's right. Family, children, army service. There is this mm. sense of nothing is certain. They're living in this kind of, this sort of bubble of time when everything's happening, everything's okay. It kind of feels ephemeral at the same time. Yeah, ephemeral. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yes, yeah, that is, yeah, that definitely is a very charged moment when you know mm. what's, what's going to happen to him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. So... All that said, in terms of the personality of of Soy, does the version depicted here kind of ring true with the with the guy that's kind of come through in your in your research, or is that too hard to say? It's a really it's a really big question. I would say yes and no. Mm. I definitely say no. This is Victor Soy the myth. This is Victor Soy as people remember him. Yeah. So in the film, he's very much mean and moody, barely doesn't very often smile he sort of i don't know what what impression did you get of victor soy you know how would you imagine him from that um yeah so definitely in the in, in the film he comes across as being a a man of few words yes and that's very much part of his myth again he's sort of often called laconic you know people talk about that both in his personality and in his use of um, words in poetry is sort of in his song lyrics which they call poetry mm, yes but it's interesting the fact that he's kind of like he's he's very eloquent in his songwriting. Like the wordplay is really enjoyable. But yeah. Yes. He's he's he, when he's off stage, he's he's very much yeah, like you say, laconic and difficult to uh, mm. difficult to read and a bit kind of by comparison to a lot of his contemporaries, kind of uptight. 
I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say uptight, but just, you know, if you're grading everyone on the curve, like the very first, almost the first scene, the first time we meet Soy, he's going mm. to this beach party, essentially, you know, hanging yeah. out around the campfire. And basically everyone gets really, really sozzled and then starts skinny dipping. And Victor is really like, needs to be convinced to kind of yeah. like, take his shirt off. Exactly, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is probably how I would be in that situation. But, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, everyone else is just like, whoa, rock and roll. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's definitely more reserved. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because the funny thing is that all the sort of the accounts of him that I read from people that knew him very well do not portray him in that light at all. Okay. So he's actually portrayed as being very playful, very goofy, very sort of outgoing, very fun-loving, mm. almost the exact polar opposite from what you see in the film. Yeah, but that's not very, like, rock star is it? <laughs> no, it's not. So you see the sort of face of Victor Soy, the rock star, the man, the myth, but... But the reason why I sort of thought, well, yes and no, is because Victor Soy himself kind of almost created this myth. He was so when he was in the film The Needle, which I think mm. uh, we spoke I about a little bit before we watched the, the film. In the intro, yes, yeah. in that film, this that that is the quintessential Victor Soy. The way he's portrayed as this kind of this figure who he belongs nowhere. He you know he fights the cause that just because he feels like it's just. He's very sort of cool, mean and moody, the sort of hero figure. And that's kind of what Soy played with in his sort of stage persona. And he, he would always mm. say about the needle, I'm not acting in this film, I am just being myself. So Soy felt like that person as well mm. as the kind of the more human, if I could say, side of him that he probably, actually, if you knew him, he probably wouldn't be at all like the depiction of him by Teo Yu in the film. Mm. So there is this kind of, and, I've, and I'm going to probably write a whole chapter in my thesis about this kind of problem of myth and actual sort of person. Yeah. Because it's just so interesting, this divide that Soy wanted to reconcile. He wanted to be seen as, I am so, I am authentic. I am honest. As you, you know, as you see me on stage is how I, has a, how I am. I am not putting on a persona. I'm not putting on a mask. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> there was this yeah. whole other side to it. I mean, it's so interesting. And that is interesting as that comes in at the end of the film when he, I'm trying to remember the name of his, uh, is it Mari- Mariana? His, Mariana, his yes, exactly. New, his new girlfriend at yes. the end of the film. And she's a bit more kind of like image conscious and mm. like makes suggestions about like what he might wear on stage. And he's kind of like, he's very receptive to that. But yeah. But she, but she is, uh, seems to be very conscious of the fact that rock music very much is a performative thing, and you have and you you project and you often project a, a certain mm. like persona when you're on stage, and you know you dress in a way that's n- not necessarily what people would just wear, you yeah, know, just walking about the place. So again, there's some truth, but it's not entirely like, it was not entirely like that at all. So Mariana mm. was, he, she, she did take a big role in kind of the makeup. She did take a, you know, she did do the hair. She did have an active role in styling the band. But at the same time, Soy was very aware of his, his appearance. He was sort of known as a stylish band, more mm. than a grouper. <laughs> he was, yeah. that, that was part of, you know, Kino's difference almost that it was this fashion band almost mm. and they and i 
very much believe that, you know, Victor Soy and his bandmates would have spent time thinking about their, how they presented themselves, how they mm. presented themselves, not just their appearance, but also their sort of movement on stage. Everything oh, yeah. was, you know, was thought about. And they were very particular. I mean, it was obviously um, inspired from, you know, sort of Western bands in some way, but they were very mm. clear in saying, this is our own style. This is our own thing. This is, you know, Russian sometimes. They would even yeah. go as far to, you know, it, it was a very important part of, the whole concept, the whole feeling of Kino. With <laughs> mm, mm, the sort of the aesthetic yeah. side. I feel like I'm jumping around slightly here, but um, there was uh, someone on Twitter, I kind of asked before we recorded this, like, who's seen it and what did they think? And so yeah. one person said, the movie de- uh, depicts them like carefree idiots rather than serious musicians. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and uh, they said I I didn't like how it made them seem so superficial, mm. and that seems to echo some of the criticism from the people from the time, but mm. Boris Grubenshikov and others. It's, it seems to be a very similar criticism. Mm. So that um, that was uh, Les Faucines, I think is how you pronounce uh, their handle. But but anyway, yeah. So mm. there is this criticism out there, but I didn't think that they seemed shallow personally i i felt mm. like some of the people like around the edges some of the fans seemed quite like yeah like stereotypical kind of groupy ish but i felt like the main musicians did did seem to take their craft really really seriously yeah and that's that seemed to be one of the things with mike is that he was because he was that bit older and he has a kid and he's sort of like trying to make ends meet because he can't mm. really earn money from gigging, but it's still, you know, this all encompassing hobby. Mm. You kind of see him under stress in a way that's kind of not really happening to Soy because he's he's kind of like the new kid on the block and doesn't have the same responsibilities. <laughs> But at the same time, Victor Soy did have a child very young with Mariana in 1984, mm. I think, 1984. I, if uh, I'm okay, one year out, yes. I could be one year out, but... Yeah, and he does talk about in the movie how he wants to have a kid. Yes, yeah, and it would have been basically... I mean, I think that the film is probably set from about 1981, which was the moment of sort of Garen y Grupa Baloidi coming together, to about 1984. And the way that the, the film tells you that is through the costumes... Uh, so I okay. recognised yeah. the, the sort of image of Soy in the last scene from photos from the Leningrad Rock Club Festival that happened in 1984. And that kind of told me, okay, this is where we are in the... Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, because the band get their hair cut and they wear yes. uh, like more makeup on stage, which they hadn't been doing. It's it's funny, actually. Um, I forget the name of uh, the character, but uh, one of the organisers at the club Mm. Um, it's like, oh, new romantics. We've wanted some of these for a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite liked her character actually, in a, in a funny way. Yes, like, Ivanova, I think she's called. Is 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 that is she the um, the one who senses the, does the lyrics? When yeah, she, she runs the lyrics, through the that lyrics. That's a really with great them. scene. Like, I think that's a wonderful scene. Yeah, it's my, possibly even my favorite in the film. It's just so mm. funny the way that. Um, it's betrayed. I think in real in reality, Ivanova mm. was quite sympathetic towards the rockers. I think she was kind of considered an insider, although she did have this position mm. of authority. But you kind of see that a bit in the film. Um, yeah. When- <laughs> oh, definitely. Like, because initially you think that she's going to be like a total 
killjoy and yeah. just being like, no, you can't. But she's talked around quite easily, mm. but she's she's got her job to do and, you know, she doesn't want to get this thing shut down. Yeah. You get the feeling she's really a fan of the sound of rock music, but she really struggles to reconcile it with being like a, a loyal, like, I don't know that she's necessarily a member of the party, but she's she's certainly somebody who believes in the system. Yeah. Uh, so she's kind of like wants to have wants to have it both ways and wants to enjoy this sound. But she kind of like, I'm making it sound really unsympathetic. No, and- not at all, because I think, yeah, I think a lot of people were in that position. A lot of people didn't necessarily want to overthrow the whole system. They weren't wanting to kind of oppose the Soviet government at all, yet they wanted to have rock. I think that was quite common, having this kind of of dual existence. (laughs) Yeah, they wanted more freedom, but they didn't necessarily want to, like, rock the boat at the same time. So they were kind of trying to come to some, like, workable compromise. Because, like, in what 81 82 mm. you don't you don't know that in 10 years it's all going away definitely <laughs> i know. mean there's a very yeah there's a very famous book that talks about that by alexey yurchak everything was forever until it was no more and it's it's very sort of famous in russian and slavic studies as being a book that really sort of helped to start thinking about how things aren't so simple as just official world and unofficial world how people Mm. were living in ways you know had their private lives that were separate from their public lives where they could sort of enjoy things you know people that were even soviet officials yet had an interest in rock music and all sorts this idea that people weren't living the whole lives by the system i I, it's really worth a reading he talks about this concept of it's kind of like simultaneously conformist but not (laughs) sort of like putting on the face that you have to to kind of get by but then at the same time when when you're not being necessarily watched as closely you kind of do your own thing a bit more yeah yeah I think I think that was probably the case I mean definitely not in the late 1980s it got very much more complicated but this film is is about the early 1980s and it is it is a time I mean we all know sort of what happened afterwards (laughs) And how things become right. more open and more, you know, liberal and the rock musicians are suddenly going on world tours. But that that is not even in their sights. I mean, at this point, the band no. would not have possibly imagined that could happen. And that's really important to remember. Yeah, like it's it's a, a big achievement for them that they've even got a gig venue where they, they can actually, you know, yeah. have a crowd and they can do it out in the open and there does seem to be a little bit of a subtext of like let's not spoil this definitely and that that was a big almost concern, concern. yeah it was yeah i mean the, the rock yeah. club opened in 1981 so this would have been very much the start you know this is the the first years of that existing this is a very pivotal moment in the history of leningrad rock yeah i wanted to ask you a bit a bit about the the concert because we see several yes. at the Leningrad Rock Club. And then we also see a Kvartirnik as well, yeah. like the uh, apartment concert at a later point in the film. But I wanted to know like, how true to life the depiction of of the concert was, because it's, it's quite funny and surreal yeah. if you're used to what a rock concert is like yeah. in the West, i.e. like... At least if it's if it's not like a big stadium gig, but if it's kind of like a, a moderate sized venue and it's kind of standing room only <laughs> and it's kind of quite raucous. Whereas this, we have everyone sitting in in chairs and when a song finishes, yeah. everyone claps politely and that's as much as you're allowed to do. And like 
the security like even make an issue of one of the fans like holding up a placard mm. just which has a heart on it and it's like no no that's too much put it down stop it stop it now um and i want i wondered whether that was is that an exaggeration or or was it genuinely like no you you, you could have this music but as long as you're you know yeah. <laughs> polite and seated uh-huh. and treat it a bit more like you're the uh audience in a classical concert you know it's that more of that kind of etiquette yeah i mean from what i know it was completely accurate depiction there was a, there mm, was really a, there was an entire ban on dancing at concerts until 1987 oh no way yeah it's true it is true it's so weird. it is very weird yeah i mean it's it's completely bizarre to think that you couldn't express mm. yourselves but to them it was just all to do with keeping people within the normal parameters of soviet behavior really it was keeping people from getting to mm you know, rebellious almost. And that mm. was the problem with rock music, that they feared it could get people to kind of <laughs> wound up almost or get people, you know, to harbour that rebellious spirit that they feared so much coming in from the West, as they, you know, they would refer to it as the West. I mean, it really does mean more like, you know, America, maybe British, you know, UK, but... Yeah. Yeah, that that reminds me uh, of the incident on the train, which is like mostly is bracketed within the this didn't happen but you have this uh i guess he's probably in his 50s Mm. like he looks like he might be slightly drunk (laughs) but very kind of like careworn wizened uh soviet guy like just haranguing some of the rockers who are on the on the train it looked like a like an elektrichka to me like a regional train it's not like a they're not going far but yeah uh, and he's just like yelling at them for being like non-soviet and it's like you're singing our enemies songs and it's kind of like whoa yes i mean it's very the film is very explicit about what it's dealing with this kind of the soviet mm. union their sort of fear of this culture coming from the west it's all very spelt out um yeah but i would imagine this this was kind of always there in the background even mm. dressing in a non-soviet way could get you just randomly pulled into a police station yeah like i remember in Assad, mm. which of course victor soy <laughs> uh, appears in briefly yes. you have a scene where the main uh one of the main characters bananan mm. is just kind of like walking down the street and he's pierced his own ear mm. and like hung a, oh i do remember a, yes. like a, a passport photo of his yes, uh, I remember, yeah of his uh his love interest you know in his mm. ear and and a, and a cop basically is kind of like uh-uh no you don't and just takes him down the station just because he's mm. he's doing something that's not allowed mm. yeah and that was definitely that scene on the train with the you know just the other passenger mm. yelling and basically getting the the train officials to kind of like to rough up the uh uh, the rockers is yeah it reminded me of that yeah I, I mean i guess there is some truth in these stories and there will be anecdotes like this that happened i think the general impression i get though is that the rock musicians themselves probably didn't live in fear maybe as much as the film depicts i kind mm, of okay. get the impression they would have more just you know put on a coat not particularly been noticeable I don't, I don't think they would have been so provocative in a way okay it would have been a kind of like in certain spaces, you can yeah. dress a certain way. But if you're just in a more general, like, if you're going to be noticed and you're going to get yourself into trouble, you kind of maybe keep your head down. I a bit think more. so. I think they kind of they carved out these spaces where they could be free, but generally did conform as much as they needed to to get by. Yeah, because yeah. it, it is interesting just, like, 
contrasting being into this like lifestyle and uh, and culture mm. in a society where you genuinely are much less free mm. and you're comparing that with like punks in the UK and the US mm. at the same time who kind of think of themselves as being like really really uh kind of anti-establishment and whatever yeah. where then you know they're not going to be like randomly taken down the police station for for just like looking a certain yeah. way so it's it, it is it is interesting <laughs> i'm not quite no, sure what but I'm it's to say very there, interesting but it's... because actually within the sort of leningrad rock club circles punks were just not accepted <laughs> They didn't want oh, people okay. that were being, you know, putting themselves out there. There is the punk in the film who is yes. probably a guy called, well, Svenja, I think they used to call him, but pig is the sort of English. Oh, okay. Svenja, I think they would sort of, you know, abbreviate his name to his nickname. Okay. Um, Andrei Panov. Yeah. And he actually played in a band with Soy in the late 1970s. Okay. It was Soy's first band. It was a punk band. Um, trying to remember, it was after my teacher's gear something and i cannot remember the name okay a u <laughs> automatic, automatic something, something. <laughs> as far as i can remember i'm sure a google search will will fulfill the rest of the yeah. name <laughs> and they were a punk band they were the soviet union's first punk band and soy oh okay he didn't you know he wasn't singing song well he was songwriting himself yeah but so he sort of broke away from this really he became more mm friend you know became better friends with other people outside of this you know punk circle and moved away from that but you see him in the film and i'm fairly sure that this is who the punk is supposed to be he would have oh, i mean okay. these sort of circles are quite fluid they probably would have still kind of mixed but so i started to spend more time at this point with mike nawamenka with boris grubenchikov but it is the punk in the film who is the one targeted by the police and this sort of the guy on the tram who creates the confrontation but yes yeah the way that it is this kind of punk culture it's not made too clear in the film how that differs from the leningrad rock culture itself where punks were just not accepted okay was there a particular reason why they weren't i think or... it was that they just didn't want to rock the boat they didn't i think it's sort of uh, okay. was too yeah, anti-establishment too kind of raw too aggressive and the, the leningrad rock musicians really considered themselves as artists they were doing this create this new art and they were you know, mm. poets, and it was all, you know, supposed to be kind of this new great cultural movement, which it was, but they didn't want it just to be something, you know, too um, violent. <laughs> so there was more of a pragmatism of like, well, we'd actually like to be able to do this rather than get shut down next week Definitely, because yeah. the authorities see us as a threat and just, you know, kind of nip us in yeah, the Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's Steinholt that writes about this, but how forgive me if I'm wrong, but how the Leningrad rock musicians kind of continued to sense themselves even after they had to, because they were mm. so afraid of, you know, pushing it too far. Well, and the thing is, you don't you don't know that it's definitely going to continue yeah. to open up, because if, you, if your parents had told you about, like, the Khrushchev Thor, where you kind of had, like, a temporary kind of opening up and then things kind of closed back down again you you don't take it for granted that things are just necessarily going to keep opening and keep mm. opening it's like the other shoe might drop and you might have to like it's suddenly like make excuses for decisions you took when y you had a bit more leeway yeah. so i wonder whether that was contributing to people's like 
self-censorship. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think in that context, I think, yeah, the thing that maybe people don't think about enough is how, for like Soy, he, his sort of formative years would have been during stagnation. You know, he would have grown up in the 1970s. Mm. And that just sort of leave a leave its mark, I think, if you're constantly reminded what is what you can do, what you can't do. It's very hard to leave that behind. And you do have that kind of instinctive, sure. you know, fear of, of um, crossing the line a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, drawing on. But I think attention. probably during the last year of Glassness, they could have been a bit more open with what they were saying if they did want to write uh, the sort of famous saying that there's no sex in the Soviet Union. These bands didn't ever write about oh, sex. Yeah. I mean, if they wrote about love, it was very much from a very sort of, um, you know, uh, idealized, idealized or even just sort of dissociated almost like very sort of not okay. not emotionally invested almost oh uh, okay or drugs or alcohol they didn't really come into the songs they didn't want to be seen as you know mm. morally decadent or whatever <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 it's very interesting so rock and roll yes sex and drugs exactly. not so much yeah exactly i'm sure drugs were going on i mean it, it is referenced in the film right i think in this the very first sort of scene when everyone's in the forest and somebody talks about oh uh, about yeah. weed or something but okay yeah i think you're um, right but yeah. again soy is portrayed as this sort of figure who resists that i think somebody asks him would you do you want a drink and he says no we don't drink so he is sort of portrayed yeah. in this light as this kind of pure honest relatively straight edge but i'm mm. sure he did drink <laughs> i'm sure he did party yeah. hard <laughs> He was a rocker. I mean, he he did had a very different life, maybe to Mike Nomenka. Mike Nomenka did have problems with alcohol, and that's referenced in the film. Yes, and that's ultimately probably contributed to his his fate. I although think that's so. there are different, different versions, versions of that, that isn't yes. there? Yes, but I yeah. think whereas um, Mike Nomenka did sort of go off the edge a bit, <laughs> well, probably a lot. So he did keep his head very much screwed on. He knew what he wanted. He was very ambitious. Mm. He was very driven, and whatever versions of people you know people come up with his death i mean he's pretty much accepted it was just you know it wasn't to do with that at all you know it wasn't as if he was driving drunk or i mean i don't yeah. know but i don't get the impression that he was living fast to die young <laughs> it was one of those those right but i mean it's so uncertain i mean you can never really know what happens when he died in a car crash essentially so <laughs> right right but with with some rock stars you definitely like get the sense that they're on borrowed yes, time yes and then when something happens to them you kind of go well that's really sad but you know the writing was on the wall yes. for a while and there's you know numerous examples you yes. can point to um, but yeah that doesn't seem to be the thing with soy from what i've seen it seems to be been a bit more of a like bolt from the blue yeah i think so i think that's quite important for a non-Russian audience to recognise when these sort of days come up on, dates come up at the end of the film, not to make the assumption yeah. that these guys died young because of drugs and alcohol. Maybe it was yeah. the case for Mike Naumanker, but I don't think that was the case for Victor Soy. It was one of those tragedies. Yeah, that just just happens. Yeah. <laughs> but it is that really that made him into this cult figure, this cult, you know, hero. Yes, because he, he never gets to be like middle-aged and yeah. kind of like maybe produce like some less good <laughs> albums and, you know, lose his, lose his like rakish exactly, good looks. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, it is really important. That's probably why he's just so big in Russia. He's this this youth icon and he, he will be for many years. I mean, at the rate, I mean, at the mm. moment, there's a huge amount of popularity. It's his, um, mm. in five days will be the 30th yeah, anniversary of his death. Oh, so okay. that's a really right. big event. There's yes. a lot of hype. 
So it's, yeah, keeping me busy at the moment, trying to keep on on top of what's going on. And but it's a really big summer. All the events. Um, mm. He's really popular. I mean, it's not just popular in Russia, but also all the sort of former Soviet countries. Yeah, like if you if you can speak Russian, you can enjoy his music essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm always, you know, recognizing that that it's not just Russia. It very much is a broader yeah, region, like the Russian speaking exactly, yeah. speaking world. And you don't even necessarily have to be like ethnic Russian Definitely either. Not. Like it, it's it, it seems like from mm. what I can tell, like Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, who kind of like have like heritage mm. Russian language skills. Yeah. Uh, seem mm. to enjoy it as, uh, as well. I sort of had a, a theory about the film. It, it seemed to me like that it was very much aimed at a non-Russian oh, right. audience. Yeah. It seemed like it... I felt like it was trying quite hard to make the case for, like, this is a guy that you should have heard of. Oh, and, right. And he's really yeah. good. The reason I say that is just because... It, maybe it's, it'll seem kind of superficial, but just the fact that you have the credits are are in English mm. and you have as many English language songs featuring as prominently mm. as they do because of course you know the guys that the mm. story's about are into American and British Definitely. rock music so it makes sense that they're there but they are like those songs are very front and centered in a way that you didn't necessarily yeah. have to be and it's that's not that's definitely not a complaint on, on my part but i was i was a little bit curious about like the choice of those particular songs whether they were songs that were super popular in the soviet union or whether they were more like these would be cool songs to have in have in our movie. I think, yeah, I think these songs are chosen because they are the bands that probably influenced Victor Soy the most. Mm. Um, okay. He was very influenced by the sort of new wave bands, Talking Heads. Um, gotcha. Who else in the film? There's Lou Reed was also somebody who the rock musicians were very inspired He's, by. Yeah. He was a you know, sort of way of, way, way with words maybe, was an inspiration. Also mentions T-Rex. Yes. Mark Bolan is Mike's favourite by a long way, yes. it seems. Like, Soy likes him too, but he's he's Mike's kind of like yes. rock god. And we also have Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop, yes, uh, we have, definitely, Because we have yes. Passenger. Again, he's somebody who's quite visual, as far as I know. Maybe that's why yes. he was included. But yeah, also through the music, you do become aware of the difference between Mike Norman Kerr and Victor Soy. I mean, there's, there's the moment when their drummer has to go on has to go on army service and so they he's called, he's called up. up yeah he's he's sent off to afghanistan when um he leaves soy and his bandmate alexei ribin or actually called in the film leonid as a kind of pseudonym they decide to play with a drum machine and there's this moment when mike says you know what are you doing are you playing rock music um you know <laughs> oh yeah, yeah what yeah. is this yeah that's it's like disco. that's disco yeah that's exactly what he says that's that's kind of like that's outside of bounds and soy retorts like well bowie's using David a drum Bowie machine a, so a i don't know what i'm talking about also surprising not in the film but duran duran although no it, maybe it is mentioned in the film it is mentioned oh yeah it is but but uh mike uses them as like a term of derision yes like, like, like they're an uncool yes. band like oh yeah well duran duran but that is potentially the most influential band on kino actually <laughs> So I loved mm. that kind of, you know, real 80s, new wave, drum beat driven music kind of synthesizers. He loved all that, you know, 
if he could have had a synthesizer in his band, if he could have had a, probably even a saxophonist, he would have had that. He would have had a real sort of poppy, mm. loud sound. And he did say at one point in one of his interviews, you know, we do pop music, it's not rock, it's pop. <laughs> so he does have that, you know, this new forward thinking, you know, attitude towards his music. He goes from being the singer with his guitar, which is more to do with circumstances than his actual musical preferences. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and towards and towards the end, he gets quite mm. frustrated with the with the quality of the equipment. He does, and that's true. I would definitely say that was true. Okay, and that's again a bit of a philosophical mm. difference between him and Mike, because Mike is like, well, it doesn't matter. The point is to get your yes. songs out there. It doesn't matter that it doesn't sound great. It's like, mm. is it a memorable song that the kids are going to be like? singing to each other and if if you can do that then then you've made it who cares if it doesn't sound yeah definitely but he's just like oh this sucks (laughs) (laughs) yeah but but Sawyer was very concerned about how it sounded I mean there are sort of accounts of him as happens in the Mm. film storming out saying this isn't good enough he 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 was he was almost kind of embarrassed he didn't want to sound like he was inferior to these western bands well anglo-american bands Mm. And that he, you know, he was very proud of his music and he wanted it to sound good. He wanted it to sound like proper sort of real studio produced pop, (laughs) pop rock. Mm. And he does probably achieve that somewhat by the late 1980s when... Oh yeah, some of the, some of the later... Yeah, probably Grupa Krovi is the first one that you really get that full sound. Although it's still maybe a bit behind, but you, you get that sound. But I feel like to, to Soy, his first few albums were really kind of just almost leading up to that, really. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, well, get them done and yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, he had to, he wanted to make albums. He wanted to, because they circulated, people got to mm. know the band through them. But yeah, he was very, very concerned about sound <laughs> more than perhaps the rock musicians who very much focused on just, well, even just the lyrics and the song. Yeah. And the, and I guess the the live performance. Yes, yeah. But for Soy as well, live performance was more important than recordings. Mm. Pro- I mean, you just say in a few interviews that for me, concerts are the only way that I can really connect with my audience. I can really put my image on stage, especially because they couldn't make music videos. But again, but he was mm. he was inspired no, by kind of real, <laughs> you know, popular music, rock band, music videos, stadium concerts. But fully in the film, it's kind of... Not shown in that way. There's a scene, a uh, part of the concert when Mike Naumanko and Sawyer are interviewed, and they're asked, you know, what would your ideal concert mm. be if you could have all, you've had all the money that you needed? What would you, you know, have? And Mike Naumanko says, oh, I'd have a stadium with thousands of people. I'd have a full, you know, wind section, three drummers, two pianos, <laughs> and elephants. He says. Whereas when Sawyer's asked the same question, he says, well, you know, why would I want to have a stadium concert? I wouldn't be able to see people's faces. So he's portrayed as this the person who mm, yeah, wants yeah, that yeah. authenticity, that connection. Whereas maybe that was probably possibly the other, the other way around. <laughs> who knows? And these are all big questions for, you know, that I'm doing with my research. But it's very interesting. Mm. The film, you know, obviously I do see the kind of the way the short the shortcomings of the film and, you know, the the fact that it's not mm. purely factual, the fact that it does maybe portray people differently, especially Soy. I mean, I can't imagine he was like that at all in real life. But it does highlight quite a lot of really important issues. <laughs> There's so many things we've discussed so far that are just, you know, that are just so crucial to understanding the Leningrad rock scene and these paradoxes and these contradictions. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a I think it's a smartly made film, and there are there are interesting 
decisions. I like the fact that you do have the scene where their bass player does get drafted and you have the scene of all of the the conscripts basically going through this rather humiliating medical exam where they're kind of having to take all their clothes Mm. off and be like prodded and it's just kind of like that isn't necessarily something that's in a movie that's as shallow as some of the reviews suggest like you wouldn't bother with that yeah i do think some of the reviews have been a bit too maybe harsh or maybe not quite i think especially if you don't understand everything that's going on maybe you wouldn't see it through Mm. the same eyes i mean i don't know but i think you do learn a lot about early 1980s soviet union from the film it's very sort of informative in a way sort of helps people to understand from a popular you know point of view this is this is a bit of a random thing to throw in but it seemed to me a bit like the main kgb guy who's at the leningrad rock club and Mm. you see him in the first scene but he also comes back in later scenes he's very much like uh kind of square and very much like he'd rather not be doing this but he's kind of like oh okay um but it seemed to me like they'd kind of slightly naughtily cast someone who is vaguely reminiscent of putin in terms of his facial features oh did i right yeah i didn't think of that i mean the film because he's got the very like it's kind of balding and quite like well you, you know you will know what putin looks like um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this guy is kind of like an exaggerated yeah. version of that interesting uh, and i wondered whether that was a deliberate like we'll get someone who looks well, I mean, slightly I, i'm always very surprised we like haven't talked that. about this so far but all the kind of controversy over the film and kirill sibrenikov i was gonna say yeah we i feel like we would be remiss if we didn't mention the circumstances under which the film was we made didn't mention it at all yes yes, yes. so as yes, I'm sure you know about, but Kirill Serebrenikov was on house arrest for alleged embezzlement of funds from the Ministry of Culture. So he had to finish the film, you know, from <laughs> his home. But there's been a lot of speculation. People say, you know, it wasn't a real offence. It didn't happen. It was just a kind of way of the cultural authorities sort of stifling this artistic freedom, a film that's, well, some of his other work as well. Um, mm. Like the student, I think, was under the fire a bit, but the sort of, but Lieta, particularly at the time, showing basically people wanting to be free <laughs> and this kind of, you know, almost as if the film is saying something about society now, whether it's not or I don't, I just don't know. But there was a lot of speculation over the real motives for Serebrenikov's arrest to do with the film. Yeah, definitely that it was it was trumped up and there wasn't yes. really anything to it. It was basically just a way of like oppressing the guy and making it clear we don't like you and we we know that you that you don't like us and because of that and because you're too outspoken we we're, we're going to make your life super yes. Yes. inconvenient and restricted like I'm underplaying it just like we're just going to yeah. make things really difficult for you yeah he's just um, uh, I think it was in June that the sort of final court hearing and he's been um, mm. put on probation and given a big fine <laughs> it was going on for many years and it really has sort of shaped the world's reaction to the film because they see it as part of this whole political <laughs> affair as well you know you hear about right. the letter and you think oh Kirill Sobrenikov or the um, the person who was put on house arrest for supposedly, <laughs> you know, showing something against the cultural standards or... Yeah, and, and like modern Russia has the very weird thing of like being really not that much like 
the Soviet Union in terms of the way that society is set up, but still very much revering it. Or at least the the kind of official thing is like, well, we were a great country back then, so so you're not meant to knock it. Exactly. Well, and some people think that the film itself is a kind of pro-Putin nostalgia because it's showing people in this kind of restrictive framework getting on and being creative and that that could possibly mean that um, the film Mm. is sort of doing this state-authorised nostalgia, which is portraying the Soviet Union in quite a positive light, really. Mm. I mean, the film is very positive about this time. It shows them overcoming the odds and doing really well and... Maybe this is what the film's about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I felt like, and I don't know how much of it is just me bringing <laughs> my personal like personal limited knowledge and feelings to the the well limited knowledge. Like I have strong feelings about it to the to the film, and I and I just felt that like it was very it's quite a, like a stifling atmosphere and just yeah. this sort of like frustration of just like not being able to do what you want without kind of someone looking over mm. your shoulder. And I, and I almost felt like the the musical numbers mm. that we've talked about, the fantasy scenes, were almost in there to kind of like a sort of light yeah, relief. Yeah, I think, yeah. Because if you took them out, it's it feels like it would be a much heavier yeah. film to me, whereas the... The musical numbers are kind yeah. of are, are really playful, and we and I haven't talked about this, but we've got the the special effects of like the computer graphics and basically yeah. like the doodles that are on that are on screen um, as these songs are playing, which aren't really a feature mm. elsewhere. Um, although you do have quite it, 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 mm. there's definitely a lot of visual flair to this film. Like you've got split mm. screen happening at certain points, and mostly it's black and white, but there's occasional, like, s- scenes, like, when they return to the yes. uh, to the beach where it goes into colour, and some kind of, like, it's supposed to be, mm. like, camcorder footage that's in colour, but quite sort of, um, mm. like, washed out, like it's recorded <laughs> yeah. on, like, cheap tape kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it a, is, it, yeah. it's a really lovely film to look at. I, I think that all kind of comes in to this idea of um, the sort of the Soviet world versus this other sort of imaginary fantasy Western world. And the, the, the sort of sense that when it's in black and white, we see the characters sort of struggling through their lives and they're being watched, as you, yeah, as you mentioned, mm. and how, you know, the sort of blending into the grey matters, as it were. And then you see these kind of colourful segments, which are them yeah. sort of living out their other private, you know, more liberated worlds where they can be themselves, where they can experience yeah. this kind of western fantasy almost and yeah i mean there is um alexei Yurchek talks about the imaginary west so this idea that they weren't imagining the west as you know mm-hmm. actually as it was with mortgages and <laughs> and poverty and uh, unemployment <laughs> they were imagining it yeah mass unemployment yeah. I mean, in britain and, and america like the early 80s yeah yeah exactly a fun but time either. represented um having things really and being able to express themselves whether yeah. they i mean i don't think many of them just wanted to go off to the west they wanted to live in you know in the soviet union they felt soviet but they just wanted mm. this kind of this freedom and that's what the film really speaks to me yeah but i think i definitely think you're right i think if there weren't those segments with the rock music from america and and britain and Elsewhere, I just don't think it would feel the same. And I think you're totally right in observing that there is this sort of light-hearted yes. element that's added with that that just wouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, some of them kind of reminded me um, of Gogol 
bordello which uh, in terms of the delivery <laughs> i think it's just yeah. any time you're uh, you're singing like punky rock songs with a with a, a thick like eastern european <laughs> accent it's it's going to remind me of that but of just absurdity really I mean, yes like it is very fun oh, seeing like the old ladies on the bus like talking heads in. in a very you know psycho killer in a very strong russian accent i just can't get it out of my head something quite special <laughs> yes it's funny it's funny you know yeah yeah um would you say that's your favorite of the of the cover versions or it's definitely the one that i remember the mm. most definitely and i think for that reason i would say it's my favorite i just i think the use of these doodles on the screen mm. and everything's just flying at you you've just yeah. sort of experienced i don't know about 20 minutes of quite sort of you know <laughs> slow drama you know slow yeah 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 action and then you get the scene and you see victor soy doing these kind of karate poses and the I was going to say you even you even get him doing some some of his his martial arts, which it's kind of like oh they managed to like even crowbar this in, element definitely. of his they put so much yeah. into it. It kind of it feels like a very well crafted film, even though on first viewing mm. it does feel as if it's kind of a bit everywhere, kind of loose and baggy, loose and baggy. But when I think when you see it, I think I've seen it five times now. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was going to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really see how you know you notice little things each time and. Mm more and more characters become clear who they are. You notice little ways in which they kind of create this this world through a two and a bit hour film. Yeah. It's it's yeah, I, I like the film. Um and I yeah, I do recognise the issues that people would have to, you know, have with it. And I recognise if especially if you knew these people personally, it might oh, be a bit yeah. if you don't have the distance. Yeah, it might <laughs> yeah. be yeah, quite awkward, quite upsetting to see them it's kind of your legacy, essentially. And yeah, definitely. Like, you know, at a very, very important time in your life, it's the thing mm. that you'll be remembered for, and it's the people that you knew. And it's kind of like, I can totally get why you wouldn't like people <laughs> going into it and like not yeah. doing it justice as you uh-huh. see, as as you see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I think I think it's fair to say we're both pretty biased so it might be quite a difficult question to answer Mm -hmm. but um again this is a a twitter comment we i had it's from a chap called peter Sargent, who is at petesky underscore uh 1703 and he said i enjoyed it but i suspect it has limited appeal Uh, not sure it did full justice to the importance of soy and others and Uh i was kind of like yeah i I feel like it's trying really hard to make soy seem cool and mm. but I I'm kind of like do you have to have mm. a certain level of russian to to get it and enjoy it Yeah I could see how that that could be the case I think if you mm. were particularly interested in kind of in Russia in you know the Soviet Union you would see it as you know an interesting film to learn more about yeah. what life was like in those times maybe as somebody completely outside that context it might be quite baffling um, I think the film does try and do a lot of things. It not only portrays Soy, but very much it talks, you know, Mike Nalmenko is just as prominent a character in the film. Oh, yeah. And then there's all these other figures, and if you don't know who they are, it can be quite <laughs> confusing, perhaps. You know, you think, oh, how do they know each other? What, what, you know, whereas maybe a Russian-speaking audience would understand that, in, you know, instinctively. Gotcha. But, you know, I mean, there are other films coming out about Soy soon, so maybe oh, okay. being able to watch those films and watch this one, it might might make him a bit better known in in the, in the so-called western world <laughs> yeah because i i definitely feel like musically it has a lot to offer especially mm-hmm. like the later better recorded 
stuff. It's mm. it it's the sound is really interesting, but at the same time, I can't like unlearn Russian and not be able to understand any of the lyrics. So I suspect yes. if you can't, then that does make it that bit less accessible. Do they have the translations for the lyrics at the concerts? I couldn't. They do some of the time. Some of the yeah, time, yeah. You have you have it side by side. Like I think it's more for the covers than mm. their own stuff. But you have like on yeah. one on one side of the screen. It's actually because there's a lot of copying out of mm. uh, of English lyrics. Like when people are listening to, uh, especially Mike. That's part of like Mike's job. Is yes, no, that's like, true. He did do that. Yeah, he did do that. Yeah. Reading up on him, it seems like. The Wikipedia consensus on him is that he wasn't necessarily like a great like musical innovator, but he was mm. like a great sort of like translator of like Western like rock idioms into into the Russian context uh, and making stuff popular. Although I do think he was a very important figure in the rock scene in those early years, and I do think a lot of his songs are quite still quite well known. Mm. Not so much as Soy's songs. Okay. But I do think contributed to that was his problems with alcohol and that, that kind gotcha, of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did start out, you know, with Boris Kaprinchikov. They were very close to music together, released an album together in 1979. Uh, Mike Nomoko was very much really a solo artist almost. Mm. He had a band called Zapax, Zoo. <laughs> and, Zoo, yeah. But it was always very much him plus others his thing yeah 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 because there, there are definitely bands where you kind of have I mean, that's the same for Kino really <laughs> and Aquarium but mm. um, but maybe in the later years of Kino maybe Soy did what did sort of feel like it was a band a cohesive band but but Mike did have an important role in the musical side as well of, of yeah. Russian rock and it's oh sure 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 yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, going back to the people that that Russian audiences would be more likely to be familiar with. Mm. with. Is there anyone we haven't talked about? See, I, I think there will be, although if I can remember off the top of my head or even if I recognise them, I'm not so sure. Because uh, there was one person that I recognised. Mm. Um, he has a very brief cameo, and that was Sever Novgorodsev, who was a... I mean, he's, he's still around. He's, he's 80 years old. But he grew up in Soviet Union and... I think he left in the 70s and then went to work for the BBC as a mm. as a radio DJ and he was broadcasting into the Soviet Union in in Russian and he had his show. Yeah. And he was he was very briefly you see him in in one scene where he I think I understood this this right he sells soy a like a coffee cup. <laughs> uh, oh yes. Yes. Uh yes, yeah. so he's a uh, like a very like venerable white-haired uh, gentleman but uh, he has a very distinctive voice because mm. i actually his show was still on air on the bbc and a, mm. as a, available as a podcast when i was living in russia and wow. so i actually used to used to listen to it to try and improve my russian and to be honest a lot of it was very much beyond my level but uh, <laughs> but yeah i am very familiar with his voice so i um right, so it yeah. was kind of like oh oh hang on <laughs> Doesn't, yeah, I've read about him, but I've never particularly listened mm. to his stuff. Um, uh, okay. But yeah. that is interesting, and I'm sure there are lots of people there. It is it is a film about real people. In a sense, it is about a whole community. Yeah, and often with the scene, it's kind of like... There's the, there's the people who become, like, legendary, and mm. then there's all these other people who are around. Yes. And if they weren't around to kind of, like, for there to be a scene, yeah. then maybe... 
the people who are remembered don't become remembered. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Although I do think that this kind of core group of musicians did kind of make it almost as a whole, really. I mean, these mm. these bands that hung out together. I mean, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a really great film, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's def- I would definitely heartily recommend. But with its own, it with its own sort of problems but sure very enjoyable it's quite it's quite light-hearted really it's not like a really sort of intense difficult to understand kind of film it's quite accessible and fun <laughs> which is nice yeah yeah, yeah. but at the, at the same time I, I do feel like there is that like that darkness there it's there yeah especially when you know what's going to come of these guys <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and uh very pointedly the song that plays us out is uh i'm gonna actually get the song wrong now but uh, <laughs> it's conchizolietta yes so it's uh which is definitely one of those very like portentous like melancholic songs especially in the context of of a very talented musician who dies young and there's there's quite a lot of that in soy's lyrics like uh sledi uh yes that was his very last song on the very last album oh really no (laughs) way which uh is uh, the translation of that is uh essentially like look after yourself yes yeah and it basically recounts all of these like horrible tragedies happening yeah and it's kind of like and there's a tendency to read into these lyrics as if soy had some kind of a premonition of his own death and this has really been interesting for me to look at because Mm. i mean he didn't he had plans yeah (laughs) he was going to go and tour japan and south korea you know Mm. in 1991 it it was all happening for him he did not have that idea but if you read his text you can kind of oh definitely like this narrative yeah there's definitely melancholy mixed in and 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 sledi zasaboy is is very much is very much like come on victor this is proper morbid yeah I mean, it's, it, it's it's really good musically it is, but yeah. it's uh it's just like whoa this is this is some dark stuff yes the bit when he talks about an epidemic isn't isn't nice for the, the current moment <laughs> no no yeah just like litany of awful, awful yeah. things yeah yeah cool yeah, so I think we'll give this like a hearty, hearty recommendation, especially if you're into into rock music. Yes, I would agree, definitely. Great. Well, thank you very much, Caroline, for joining me and sharing your expertise on on this subject. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Before you disappear, uh, where can people find you online if they if they want to get in touch and? you know pick your brain about some soviet rock scene and soy stuff yeah well definitely the best way is twitter i'm caroline riddler one uh riddler with one d <laughs> the gotcha. main mistake <laughs> that people make yep um yep. and yep. through that no you're, you're def- definitely not a uh, a batman villain. i'm definitely not no <laughs> and through that um i've got my midlands for city um profile which is the funding body that funds my phd and also, if you do want to check out some of Kino's music, I have a YouTube channel, uh, which you can see through my Twitter again, where I'm doing some bass covers of their songs. I- including Sledi Zasa Boy. <laughs> including Sledi Zasa Boy. Yes, that, that, yeah, the first one I did. Please do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you and respond to any questions or comments. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And thank you very much for joining us. So, das Vidanya, folks. Das Vidanya. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves and bye for now. Hashtag PodRevDay. That's P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. Hi, this is Flavia Marfella. I host Small Talks at Midnight. Hi, my name's Ali Pitts, and I host the Roost Files Unite movie podcast. Hey, this is Garrett Godfrey with the Good Patron podcast. Hashtag PodRevDay. Our challenge to you right now is to think about your favorite podcast, why you love them, and what you want to say in your review or reviews. Then, write them, share them, and follow the rest. Podcast Review Day. Celebrated on the eighth day of every month. We get to thank the podcasters that make the shows we love by posting reviews. We get to spread the word by sharing those reviews on social media. We get to discover new shows by following hashtag hashtag on social media and seeing the reviews that other folks are sharing. Hashtag PodRevDay. That's P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. One last thing before we go. If you're listening from the UK, you can pick up Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More by Alexei Yurchak that Caroline mentioned on this episode from the Roost Files Unite movie podcast Bookshop. You can find the affiliate link in the show notes to this episode and you can also find links to the bookshop in the bio for our various social media pages. So if you're looking for something to read and want to support the show at the same time, this is a great way to do it. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's only available in the UK, but it's still worth swinging by and seeing what we have, as you should be able to find most of these books from your local indie bookstore or wherever you get your books. Thanks again for listening and talk to you again soon.